Well, before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. To set the stage for what I want to talk about, I want to ask you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 12. A few verses here. It's speaking about the last plague that Israel will, that, uh, Israel will see God perform among the Egyptians in order to finally force the hand of Pharaoh so that the children of Israel will be set free to worship and serve the Lord. Verse 12, for I will pass through. This is the Lord speaking. It's a provocative and important statement. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is such an important proclamation. It tells us what God plans to do in order to deliver the children of Israel. And it's, it's something now that we can look back on with confidence and certainty because we know it happened. But if you can imagine yourself being in the most difficult of circumstances and, and being enslaved and being tormented and seeing this immense spiritual battle continue, really a spiritual war continuing with many, many battles. And if you can imagine the uncertainty that always arises in the human heart when things haven't happened fully and completely. Do you, can, can you confirm that? That you have to battle with that? You have to battle with um, the question, do I really believe that God is going to do what God said he will do? Do I really trust him in this to deliver me, to deliver us? It's an important question. In this week's Torah reading, we, we will read that the Lord says that he will stand and have a vigil on behalf of the children of Israel. That he will hold a vigil himself. He will watch over, he will be alert in order to preserve and to save the firstborn of the children of Israel. Now there's another thing to keep in mind as we're, as we're contemplating this week's Torah portion, and that is we're in a spiritual battle. How many, how many knew that already? Even had evidence this week of spiritual battles, anybody? Well, the fact is, there has been a spiritual battle going on since human beings were created, and it is continuing. And this battle is important because if you 
forget that there's a battle, you won't be able to understand what's going on in normal life because there's always a battle going on. Now, some people are just hoping that they could settle on the equivalent of some tropical island somewhere that nobody comes to and that the adversary hasn't learned the address for and that there's no spiritual battle there and that you could just go there and have peace and quiet. And there's nothing really like that. There's no way to escape the real battle. The good news, as we sang this evening, the good news is God is for us. God is for us. God is ready to protect us. He's ready to rescue us. He's ready to come to us and to deliver us and to show himself faithful. Now, I've been thinking about the passage we read all week because this statement about striking the firstborn, it's really a powerful statement. And it helps us, I think, grasp the spiritual battle that we're in. We are in a a spiritual battle that touches the firstborn and has from the beginning of humanity. Think about this. The, who was the firstborn human being, if you will? Cain, firstborn of a woman, right. But we'll take a step back and say before him, the first, the first created human being, Adam. And he had a spiritual battle. Isn't it true? And the first created woman, Eve, had a spiritual battle as well. I mean, they faced this battle together. The way the scripture teaches us, there was an adversary who came to, to attack what God had said and what God wanted to do in the lives of the people. And so you have the first man and the first woman, and they're in a spiritual battle, and they lose the battle. Because the battle requires of these two people what it requires of every person. And that is a humbling before God and a trust of God and a dependence on God even no matter what. Trusting in the Lord, no matter what. Children have to learn to trust in the Lord. Old people have to learn to trust in the Lord. Teenagers have to learn to trust in the, world, the Lord. Men, women, people of every culture and every language group of every era have to learn the same thing, and that is to humble themselves before God and to put their trust in the Lord. And whenever we, we try to get right with God, we discover there's a gap between where we are and where we want to be. There's a gap between his holiness and our holiness, and we need a remedy for that, and that requires a sacrifice. We'll get, we'll get to that in, in a minute. But I want you to think about this. The battle in Egypt was a battle for God's firstborn because the scripture identifies Israel, the children of Israel, as the firstborn of the Lord. So that's, that's important. It also helps us understand 
the firstborn isn't the lastborn. So there are others as well. So if the children of Israel are God's firstborn family, it doesn't mean there are no others who belong to the family. In fact, the idea that there's a firstborn means there are more kids as well. Let me, let me just check. How many firstborn men or women are here in the room? Can, would you all mind standing up just for a minute? If, 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 you don't have to stand, but I mean, if you can, you can like raise your elbow or... Yeah, look how many firstborns there are. And the firstborn sons, would you just wave at me? And imagine you're Egyptian, you're dead. <laughs> you, that's it, you're dead. Now, imagine that you have taken the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of your house and you've eaten of the lamb and you've done this as an act of faith and obedience. Good news, you're still alive. But the battle, the battle touched the firstborn. You see, the Lord was saying to Pharaoh, you have enslaved my firstborn, and you have killed many of my firstborn. You've despised their lives. You've attacked them and destroyed them. And it's going to cost you your firstborn like for like, what you did will be done. And you'll mourn for what you did when you see the price you have to pay. It's so serious when you, when you think about this that the Lord was saying, I'm doing an accounting, if you will, for what has happened in Egypt. The Lord says, it's not just an accounting at the human level or the political level, it's an accounting at the spiritual level as well. Because the Lord says, I am going to judge the gods of Egypt. The spiritual forces that the Egyptians serve, as well as the ideals that the Egyptians had that these gods represented for them. And these were not ideals of mercy and justice, but they were ideals of power and destruction and, and suspicion and injustice. And the Lord says, I'm going to strike the gods of Egypt in this way. And so the striking of the firstborn was a way of the Lord saying, the Egyptians most precious family treasure is their firstborn. And I will take them. I will take them as the price that, that Egypt must pay for what they have done to my firstborn. And they will mourn, and when they can mourn understanding that this is the judgment of God, and when they can mourn understanding that it truly is because of their sin that they have this judgment. When they can mourn and not be angry, but be humble and say, oh God, before you we have sinned and before your people we have sinned. When that happens, there's redemption that's possible.
the Lord makes a promise in the Torah portion that we're reading that he will, he will actually go before the destroyer, or as uh, David Stern translates it, the slaughterer. He will go before him, and wherever he sees, wherever the Lord sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he will stand guard at that house and forbid the destroyer from coming in. He will protect them in this way. And so that's the promise of the personal presence of God. It's the promise of the, the God who can speak, actually delivering on what he says. It's the promise of God who has authority and wisdom. It's such a promise that that God makes. When we read about this, I think it's really important for us to, to grasp that this theme about the firstborn and the importance to God is a constant theme. Now, I am not a firstborn. I'm thirdborn, secondborn son, thirdborn child. But I appreciate the firstborn. I appreciate my big brother. I'm 65 years old, and I still call my brother my big brother. And you know what? He likes that. He likes it. I'll, I'll write him or call him and say, hey, big brother, how are you? Anybody here have big brothers? Yeah. A- anybody ever get picked on by your big brother? Yeah, yeah, I did, I did. I I won't go into all of that. I did have a joyful moment of equalization once (laughs) when my brother was picking on me in the car and I just swung my hand, a fist, like this. I hit him in a part of his body I didn't understand it was his, and he didn't either for that matter. It was his solar plexus. But it was, like, it was just like, bam. You know, a little six-year-old, not a lot of power, but it hit in just the right spot. And the one who was tormenting could not speak. And he, and he was just like, <gasps> me on the other hand, I couldn't speak because I was so happy. Because <laughs> somehow we'd been equalized for a moment, but you know, that didn't last for more than about an hour. <laughs> but he was, a good, he was a good big brother. He is a good big brother. The firstborn are precious to the Lord. And this is why the Lord later will, will say that the firstborn belong to him. Whether it's the firstborn of um, a marriage, or whether it's the firstborn of one's animals, one's cattle or flocks. They belong to the Lord, and they must be redeemed if you want to keep them. They have to be paid for and purchased because they belong to the Lord. Later, the Lord says that he'll take um, Levi, Levi, the tribe of Levi, as the uh, purchase price for firstborn, in a sense 
and the Levites have to give up some of their inheritance in order to function as landless people. I come from these people. And there's a sacrifice that has to be made. When I think about the firstborn, I think about Israel being God's firstborn and this judgment where the Lord is saying to the gods of Egypt and to the people of Egypt, you're messing with my firstborn. And it's gonna cost you your firstborn. It's such a serious thing. Now we are not to revel in the justice of God that was applied to the Egyptians. We're to revel in his mercy. We're to rejoice not in the strength with which he smote the Egyptians, but the mercy that he showed. It's important, and that's why at the Passover Seder, when we're recounting the plagues, we pour out or dip out some wine as we remember each plague, because we understand our cup can't run over when we're remembering that it was a great personal price that many Egyptians suffered. When I think about the firstborn, I think about Yeshua being the firstborn in this sense, the only begotten of the Lord. And he's, he's not just made in the image of God. You and I were made in the image of God. I mean, look at that person sitting next to you. Smile at them. They're made in the image of God. They're made in the image of God. They, they carry some of God's qualities. And it's odd, isn't it, that he would make us all look different? You would think if we're made in the image of God, we should be cookie cutter the same, but we're not. Um, because God just has either a sense of humor or he's so creative or both. I'm not sure which. But we're made in the image of God, but Yeshua was not made in the image of God. He was the fullness of God who came down from heaven and took on a human body. His body was unremarkable, but his fullness was unique. His fullness as the, the firstborn, the, the, the only begotten son of the Lord. A unique representation of God because the one who sees the son has seen the father, right? It reminds me of a story Sandy and I were um, recalling recently. When, when our teenage son, Chris, was in high school, he was taking Latin four, which was a surprise to all of us. But he came home one day and he said to Sandy, mom, an Israeli is gonna live with us. And Sandy, of course, loved Israelis, and Chris knew that. But it turned out that the language uh, classes and um, clubs were sponsoring exchange students, and that there was a group coming from Israel, and in the entire group, there was one guy, and the rest were girls. 
And in the Latin classes, there weren't that many guys. But Chris signed up for this uh, Israeli student to come without even asking permission from his mother because he was so certain she would agree. And so he came home and said, we will have an Israeli living with us. It turned out for three weeks. <clears throat> and his name was Alone Korngreen, wonderful young man, secular Israeli um, from a very fine, highly educated family. And he became a dear friend of our family and when he was serving in the war in Lebanon, he was a tank commander. And Sandy would write him literally every week and, and pray for him. And she may have been the only one who was corresponding with him who was a believer in his entire life. Well, one year we went to Israel and we spent time with him and with his uh, fiance. And then we were in Israel another time and he wasn't there, but he asked us if we could meet his parents. And so we went to his parents' house and when we were there, they were so kind and, and um, just generous towards us. But Alone's mom said to Sandy, when Alone came back from being with you, he suffered. And he would say, Sandy does this, Mom. And Sandy does that. And one of the things was, Sandy has snacks after school. <laughs> that was one thing. Well, Sandy said to Alone's mom, um, you know, I, I hope you don't hate me. And she said to Sandy, hate you, I love you because you love my son. And when she said that, it went so deep into our minds and into our hearts because we understood that's what the Lord was saying about his son. That when you show your love to him, when you actually love the son of God, you get all the benefits of the father's love of his own son. It's a remarkable thing. It's so powerful, I think. When you think that Yeshua isn't just the image, he's the original. He's the fullness of God, as we've read about recently, the fullness of God within a human body. He's not a copy. He's an original. And when you think about this, that, that it's true, it's true that blood is necessary for atonement. I mean, we know that. But it's also true that redemption requires sacrifice that's beyond what we can perform ourselves. And so it's interesting to me that God would, would send his son in order to redeem his firstborn, all of Israel. The promised Messiah of Israel, who is also the Messiah for the whole world, 
but you can't get the Messiah for the whole world if you don't get the Messiah for Israel. That's the secret that everyone should understand and know. The Lord, in order to fully redeem his firstborn Israel, knew that it would take the blood of his own son. It would take the life. The scripture says, the life is in the blood. And without blood, there's no atonement. This is necessary. But it's also, in a sense, connected to the firstborn. This is what I, I, I really want us to pay attention to. In order to fully redeem Israel, the firstborn, what Moses did was only a prelude, but it wasn't the fullness of the redemption that God wants to perform. It was preparatory, it was essential, it was a necessary part and a part to celebrate. But there was another element of redemption. And whenever we're thinking about the redemption in Egypt, we should be thinking about the redemption that Yeshua performs for us that he causes to become real for us. He redeems us. And I think whatever we have to do to make that fresh and new constantly is what's required of us. In the same way that everyone who celebrates Passover should make it new each time they celebrate and should celebrate it in such a way that it feels as if they themselves were the ones who were redeemed out of slavery. In the same way, when we're celebrating the meal of Messiah, when we're celebrating through worship, when we're recalling what Yeshua has done for us, we should make it fresh for ourselves. Whatever it takes for you to do that, you should do it. Make it fresh. Keep it fresh. Don't allow yourself to become dull and over-familiar with the great things that God has done for you. Husbands and wives learn something similar. Keep it fresh. Keep your love fresh. Keep it alive. Find new things and new ways to be nice to each other and to be sweet to each other. <laughs> I don't know where I was this week because I was all over the place. But there were at least a couple of occasions where I said to someone, well, we're newlyweds. And people typically go, oh, that is so cute, I knew it. And they'll say, so when did you get married? And it's like, oh, 43 years ago. Still newlyweds, keep it fresh. Remember the first love you have for Yeshua. Remember his love. Remember how amazing it was when you realized how much he cared about you, how much he, he paid attention to you, how he knew you by your name. You were a person to him, not just an unknown entity. Remember how amazing it was when it seemed like the whole world had been opened up. Can, can you recall that for yourselves? It's important to stir up those memories, and not just the memory, but to renew them so that the love that's fresh for you is constantly being renewed.
I think about Yeshua laying down his human body. His body is resurrected. And then his body ascends and it returns to heaven. What an amazing series. And then the Spirit of God is poured out, sent from heaven. This is part of the messianic mandate and mission that's often neglected. Many people focus exclusively on the atoning sacrifice of Yeshua because it's so important and essential and unique. But it's not the only thing he did that was essential and important and unique. He returned to heaven in order to send the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit of God could be poured out on all of us and so that we could be recreated in a sense with new power, with new life, and the Spirit of God himself um, could live inside of us now. What Yeshua fully was, we become uh, a reflection of. He was God in a human body. Now when you receive the Holy Spirit, you don't become God in a human body, but he who is God takes up residence in your human body via the Holy Spirit and fills you and lives within you and is distinct from you. You know that because there are times when you disagree with his advice and his commands and his instruction. This is how you know you're not the same. But we become like Yeshua, God in us, even though we're different from him. And this idea that Yeshua would return to heaven and send the Holy Spirit, it was both controversial and it was exciting. It was controversial, why? Because of the price that his disciples had to pay, the price of loneliness, the price of feeling abandoned, the price of feeling like they had finally figured out how things were gonna work and how things were gonna go. And, and they now understood eschatology. And they understood how the future would unfold and they got the sequence and the time frame perfectly right. And then Yeshua says, I gotta go. You're not orphans, but I have to go so that the Holy Spirit can be sent. Unless I return, he can't come. It's so interesting. And I think there were a lot of sulking Talmudim at that time. Wow, 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 why do you have to do it like that? We've already written our eschatological treatises. We've already figured out the timeline. Aren't you going to get rid of the Romans already and establish sovereignty and the kingdom for Israel? I mean, because we figured it out. You must, according to our eschatological evidence. And many times Yeshua just smiled. It's like, that's good, boys. Let's keep going. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, it was controversial because it cost, it cost all the 
Talmudim, their comfort. But it was exciting because it was prophetically true. And when it happened, now Peter was understanding something different about eschatology, that the last days had begun and that the Spirit of God was being poured out on all flesh and blood. And that you and I, no matter whether we were young or old, male or female, regardless of our social status, we could receive the Holy Spirit and God living in us could change everything for us and could do things with us and we could do things with the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit that would otherwise have been impossible. What an amazing an amazing transformation and change. Now, if you become dull to the Holy Spirit, get undull. If, if you figured everything out about the Holy Spirit, then lay down everything you figured out and start afresh. It doesn't mean everything was wrong. It means take another fresh look at the Holy Spirit and give him room to operate. Give more room for Yeshua the Messiah to be alive in you and to recreate and renew your mind, your ways of thinking and your ways of being and count it joy that you've been redeemed and that you will be ultimately resurrected as well, that you have a foretaste right now of resurrection. And then when, when you do that, you can look back at the Exodus, you can look back at Pesach, you can look back at um, the redemption, the, even the death of the firstborn in Egypt, and you can start assembling things and saying, this is part of my life's history, our life's history. God's been working for redemption, and he does it in many different ways, and he builds upon and keeps building it so that his firstborn can be fully redeemed. And not just the firstborn of Israel, but everyone who wants to be part of the first fruits of Yeshua's resurrection. Everyone, regardless of what your ethnic background is and your cultural background or your language or your age, you would say, hey, count me in. I want to be redeemed. If I have to take the blood of the lamb, so be it. Yes? If I have to side with the Jewish people and with Israel, okay, I'm good with that. I'm in. And when you do all of that, you can read afresh the story of redemption of the firstborn. You can read afresh the price, the terrible price that Egypt paid for mistreating God's firstborn. And then you can appreciate again the great price Yeshua paid to be the only begotten son who would suffer and die and pay the price for us. What a great story God has given us. It starts at the very beginning of time, it goes all the way through the end of time, and every step along the way has value and importance to us. Well, let's pray, Lord, we thank you that we're part of your grand story and that you are a God who is redeeming and you are devising ways that the banished ones would not remain estranged from you. Thank you for Yeshua who gave his life for us. 
thank you that he became the first fruits of resurrection so that we too could participate in his resurrection. And let it be, Lord, that not only do we enjoy the benefits for ourselves of this great redemption, but we share those benefits with others who need them so much too. Give us that boldness by the Holy Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Let the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit be working together in ways that please you always. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. I want to ask you to rise. And if you're standing all by yourself and you can't move, let someone else come close to you. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha. Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yasemlecha. Shalom. May the Lord bless you. And may the Lord keep watch over you and protect you. May the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom.